Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to Mary Aberstadt, the author of a phenomenal new book called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. For those of you who have never heard of Mary Averstadt, she is an influential American writer whose contributions to the intellectual landscape traverse several genres. She's the author of both fiction and nonfiction. She is one of America's most influential and precise social commentators. I personally believe that she is one of the best social commentators currently writing in the English language, and she's written a number of books that have profoundly affected uh, the way I see the world and the way I have studied and understood the sexual revolution. Uh, One of them is How the West Really Lost God, A New Theory of Secularization. Another, which I reviewed for LifeSiteNews.com, is It's Dangerous to Believe, Religious Freedom and Its Enemies. And another is Adam and Eve After the Pill, The Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution. Her books have been translated into Spanish, French, Italian, Polish, Arabic, Dutch, Portuguese, Lithuanian, and Hungarian. And her her commentary has not only been published in book form, she has also been published in Quillette, Time, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, National Review, First Things, and The Weekly Standard, among others. She is also one of America's leading thinkers on the emerging discussion surrounding what a new community-oriented nationalism would look like. I wrote several columns for this on LifeSite News after the National Conservatism Conference in Washington, D.C., about two months back. I had the chance to uh, hear, hear Mary Aberstadt speak at this conference, and I also I had a chance to meet her in person and talk to her She's really a lovely person, and she has an absolutely razor-sharp mind. And so the book uh, that we are discussing on today's podcast is Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. It is a book that is essential, I think, to understanding why our world is the way it is and what the movements shaping our world are all about. And without any further introduction from me, here is my conversation with Mary Aberstadt. So my first question is, how did you get attracted to this topic of of the sexual revolution? Because your entire career and an entire series of previous books uh, have really focused on this subject and trying to explain the subject and trying to analyze the impact of the sexual revolution on society. So maybe just give our our listeners a bit of an idea of, of how you've become attracted to this topic and some of your previous work. Well, thank you, Jonathan. In part, my attraction to this is by accident. I I remember years ago as a young editor, I was working at a magazine called The Public Interest, and the editor, Irving Crystal, a fabled uh, journalist and essayist of his time, who was not a Catholic, uh, looked up one day and said, you know, if you were to ask what single document best predicted the world as we know it, it would have been Humanae Vitae. And it's funny because the remark sank in, and I never thought about it again for a couple of decades. And then on the 40th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, I actually read the document for an essay that I was writing, and I was struck by how prophetic it seemed. His remark uh, was spot on. And so this led me to think that if the most 
reviled public document of our time, which I think is a fair description of Humanae Vitae, right. uh, was nonetheless the best at predicting the world as we now find it. What else might be out there that wasn't common knowledge? And so this led me to a fairly systematic series of books looking at the sexual revolution. Uh, the first was Adam and Eve after the pill. And that looked at what social science was turning up about uh, relations between the sexes, female happiness, uh, and a lot of other quantifiable uh, particulars. And then I wanted to look at how the sexual revolution was affecting the churches. Mm -hmm. And the result of that was How the West Really Lost God, which is a book that argues that this is what secularization is about. It's about the churches and Christianity being locked in mortal combat with the sexual revolution and the kind of secularist, quasi-religious creed that it has given rise to. So this new book, Primal Screams, uh, I see as a capstone of sorts, because this is looking at the influence of the revolution at its very widest in the global picture. And what I'm arguing is that the kind of politics we are seeing now, identity politics, uh, which are grounded in this frenzy, uh, this moral panic in which many people no longer know who they are and are looking for collective identities to adhere to, that this is also rooted in the revolution's upending of the family unit and the communal unit and stuff we can get into in a little bit. Yeah, and to backtrack a little bit, one of the questions I've wanted to ask you for some time, ever since I read How How the West Really Lost God, because it's quite a, quite a revolutionary book if, if you have the traditional understanding of how things went, which more or less goes like, well, uh, the West lost God, and as a result of losing God, as a result of the collapse of the churches, uh, people have gotten sucked in by the sexual revolution. And your book, to, to really boil it down, makes the case that actually it was the other way around. The sexual revolution competed with and began to destroy the churches because once people atomize, they're no longer uh, thriving or living in a context where religion can flourish. And one of the reasons I found it so interesting is because I, as you know, heard you speak at the National Conservatism Conference uh, this summer, and a lot of traditional libertarians and conservatives would argue uh, that, in fact, social policy and economic policy have nothing to do uh, with religion, that religion sort of augments it, whereas in your book, uh, How the West Really Lost God, it would seem to make the policy case that there's a lot of things we can do to create the context in which the Christian faith uh, could flourish. Uh, have you uh, made that connection in your engagement with the idea of national conservatism and and how the, the interplay between our atomized society and religion has played out over the last 50 years? Well, thanks, Jonathan. That's a pretty big question. Uh, but surely the state is not neutral in these matters. The state can throw its weight, can throw the weight of the law, either on the side of helping us to be the communal creatures we are, or on the side of libertarianism. Uh, to say that is not at all to make a case for socialism, the record of the 20th century, 
speaks perfectly well to the atrocity that was socialism and, and that will be socialism again if it comes back. So this isn't about socialism. This is about understanding what makes for human flourishing. And that's why I say in the book, Primal Screams, this is primarily an argument about anthropology, not politics. And I think where we took a wrong turn after the sexual revolution was in embracing the idea that we are automatic, uh, sorry, that autonomy is always and everywhere the first directive and that we can exist as uh, consumers uh, in every field, as autonomous consumers. And the result of living this way, I think, is now um, making its way, sorry, the result of living this way, I think, is now evident in some of the worst trends that we see in the United States. For example, we have falling life expectancy uh, for, for the first time in recorded history. We have rising uh, diagnoses of psychiatric trouble, especially among young people. This is something else that I've been writing about for 15 years now, because in the beginning, people said, well, no, these rises in depression and anxiety aren't real. They're just artifacts. It's just that we're better at capturing this stuff. Well, this turns out not to be true at all. Um, and in addition to psychiatric trouble, there's also the problem of what some experts call uh, the epidemic of loneliness, especially mm -hmm. among old people. So this, too, is coming straight from the sexual revolution. It's coming from many millions of decisions taken over the course of six-plus decades now to live as if we are something other than the social creatures we are. Many people have lived... Um, in smaller and smaller families. There's been rising divorce. There's been, uh, of course, rising cohabitation. Abortion is ubiquitous. And all of these things, one by one, have helped to chip away at the circle of people around any individual. And I think what we're seeing in the panic about identity is, the, is exactly that, the fact that people can't point to some critical mass of others and say, well, this is who I am. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. I'm a son. I'm a cousin, et cetera, et cetera. These old building blocks of identity that told everyone before us who they were are no longer available to us uh, or to a lot of us. Um, and that, I think, is the fundamental existential problem of our time. And this is a really interesting question because you've basically described why you used the title of, of your book that you did, Primal Screams, that these shrieks for identity, whether it's from the feminists, whether it's from the identitarians, whether it's from uh, those who are now advocating for the idea of, of, of a wide range of genders, that these screams are are primal in that they, they are rooted in something that... Uh, is is deeper than reason it's it's they're 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 hunting for something at one point you say that it's this this scream of who am i that nobody understands and it was it was fascinating to read this because i remember after the charlottesville uh riots where one woman was killed in that face off between uh white nationalist terrorists and and those who were opposing them that 
I remember trying to figure out who these groups of young men were because they kept on talking about identity and how for the first time in their life they'd felt connected to other people behind this shared heritage. And it really made me think, as I grew up uh, with, with married parents, I have hundreds of cousins. I was the oldest of five children. My dad came from a family of 11. My mom came from a family of nine. If you had asked me at any point growing up who I was, the answer would have been, I'm a Van Maren. And that word is is heavy with weight. It has, you know, I have tons of cousins. I've got a huge family. I love them very dearly. And so I never struggled with who my identity was because, as you point out, it was rooted in all of these things. And one of the things you said that, uh, and, I, I, and I'm not sure if it was an essay in this book or one of the essays leading up to this book, when you wrote about Two Nations Revisited, and you said that white identity politics is the screaming bastard child of the birth control pill. And I thought that that line packed so much truth into it that I wanted to ask you to unpack that a bit for us. Well, let me begin by situating the argument for listeners, Jonathan. So when it comes to talk of identity politics, whether it's, you know, feminist identities, gender identities, ethno-identities, it's become a pretty common reaction uh, to just dismiss these things as the overheated expressions of various groups. You know, conservatives often dismiss identitarian politics as uh, the work of snowflakes, for instance, and this right. kind of thing. What I'm doing in this book is really very different. Um, what I'm doing is listening to what these various groups are actually saying. And the example you just gave of white nationalism captures this very well, I think. When you find people talking about how they never felt connected to a community before, and then they, they have this epiphany and they find this collective often just online kind of, quote, community, what does it tell us that whether they are left or right, you know, whether this is about ethnic identity or feminist identity or gender identity, there are so many people in our time who don't seem to know who they are until they find the group that feels like a fit. And this, I think, is very new in history. I went looking for examples um, of where you could find large masses of people in society not knowing who they are and saying that they were looking for an identity, and they don't exist. Excuse me. Other examples don't exist. And this is where we are led again back to the sexual revolution as the origin of this very new panic about identity because the revolution has removed from the lives of many millions of people a lot of significant relations and potential relations. Just think of it as a matter of arithmetic. Abortion has erased many millions of people from among us who would have been, of you know, fellow community members of some kind, uh, divorce uh, and cohabitation mean that a lot of kids grow up without both biological parents in the home. Families are smaller. And there are, of course, other factors. There's geographical mobility. There's the crash of 2008. I try to get into some of these other factors in the book because I'm not making a monocausal argument. But I do think the root of the panic over identity is 
in the erasure of community, beginning with the essential community of the family, which traditionally supplied an answer to that question, who am I? When you start really delving into this, it's it's quite fascinating because I, I've worked in the pro-life movement for quite a few years, and so... Uh, even when giving lectures at universities and things like that, I, both myself and, and many of my colleagues have been on the receiving end of the rage that you talk about, this this rage. And, and you talk about how it, it, it resembles infantilism because in some ways that's what it is. It's this, you know, scream, uh, search for meaning in, in many ways. And I remember saying to one of my friends that I simply couldn't understand a lot of the people who opposed us uh, because I, when I, when I went, when I attended university to to get my degree in history, I walked past people and protests and displays I disagreed with every day, and not once did I sort of descend into this, you know, rage in which I was no longer in control of my emotions or my faculties. But that seemed to happen so regularly in the people who were opposing us, and and you point out that this is actually rooted in in their inability to answer that question who am i in the fact that they vested themselves so fully you know behind causes and in the case of the feminist movement that they've wrapped themselves up in the very cause that's giving them the anxiety and is 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 destroying uh what they want in the first place and so maybe you could explain for our listeners, because I thought this part of your book was so fascinating, what you mean when you talk about the infantilism of the protesters and how this is really a primal scream in many ways. Well, you've hit on the right word there, Jonathan, rage. Rage is what a lot of identity politics is about. And again, that includes groups that are diametrically opposed to one another politically, but they have in common this rage that I call pre-political because it is pre-political. It's pre-rational. It's one giant scream of having been deprived of something, something that one really wants. Now, to say that is not to say there isn't injustice. Of course, there's racism, uh, there's sexism, there are other forms of cruelty, and in no way do I diminish their importance in this book. What I am saying is something different. Something unites all of the practitioners of identity politics. One of those somethings is rage. Another is this idea that something essential has been lost. And I think we see this in the language of cultural appropriation especially. When people start screaming about how you can't have that, that's mine. You can't wear that Halloween costume, that's mine. You can't cook that taco, you don't have the ethnic background required to own that taco. When we see these manifestations of identity politics, which, by the way, are not extreme, they're quite common, especially on campuses, that language is the language of a toddler. That language is pre-rational. That language is about saying, this thing is mine and you can't have it, and if you try to get it, then terrible things are going to happen. So this vernacular tells us that identity politics, again, is pre-politics. It is being driven by this tremendous sense of loss that I think can only be authentic. So identitarians have authentically identified that they feel something has been lost, but they've fixated on the wrong answer to that. I think what they're responding to 
is the collective predicament of much of mankind at this point, um, which is that we are social creatures who are not living in social society the way we are meant to or the, the way that is best for our flourishing. I, I think one of the lines that you used that, that sort of struck me uh, the most vividly, mainly because I was familiar with, with a lot of the basic data that you supplied, but when you pointed out that families are scattered today in a way that they never have been throughout human history, except in the cases of widespread warfare or natural disaster. Well, yes, and this again is what's behind this hunger to know the answer to the question, who am I? It is partly arithmetic. It's that the family has shrunk. It's that it has seen its gravitational pull uh, reduced by a lot. In the book, as you know, I get into some of the studies, one particular study on adult children of divorce, right? Mm -hmm. And how the respondents exhibit uh, clear differences in identity, Um from the respondents whose parents stayed together. Uh, so, for example, saying things like, I felt like I was a different person when I was with each of my divorced parents. Mm-hmm. These little um, these little breaks in the human fabric, these little tears in the human fabric, repeated over and over again by the millions, um, are what has made so many people feel vulnerable out there. And I think underlying uh, the rage of identity politics is this feeling of vulnerability. Again, they're onto something. They are right to feel vulnerable. They are right to feel like something has gone very wrong out there. But in fixating the grievance on abstractions like the patriarchy, the problem is the patriarchy, right? How often do we hear that? Mm-hmm. Uh, or other... Uh, other things that don't get us to the root cause. Right. Uh, yeah, when they fixate on those things, that's where the identitarians uh, take uh, a seriously wrong turn, in my opinion. And one of the places where I thought the thesis from one chapter really intersected with the thesis that you put forward in another chapter was when you talked about these transient relatives, these you know uncles who might be an ex-boyfriend who sort of came and went, this step-sibling that might have been a sibling, but that marriage broke up and moved on, so that person is no longer technically a relative or even a pseudo-relative. And that what you talked about in your chapter on feminism, where you talked about how the primal scream of rage you're getting from a lot of the feminists actually has a lot to do with the fact that they feel cornered, they feel defensive because it's a, a more dangerous time to be a woman. You talk about the Women's March, which I actually attended so that I could I could report on it. And I remember too this 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 howl of crude rage. It, it actually shook me to my core in a lot of ways because it was it was a dark force to be reckoned with. You couldn't just you know the talking heads on Fox News kind of like to poke fun at them and some and stuff like that. But this was this was a real force that was out there and demanding that it would be heard, and they will be heard. And where these things intersect is in one of the the darker realities of our culture today is the issue of pornography, where we see the statistics each year show that among young people, uh, one of the genres of pornography that has exploded over the last decade uh, involves step-siblings, stepmothers. It's all a manifestation and an indication of broken families. 
and a, a essay that came out in the Atlantic magazine last month. Uh, they, they polled women on their feelings about intimacy, and they found out that 24% of American women polled said that they feel fear during intimacy due to the fact that partners are prone to sporadic choking due to the sorts of pornography they're watching. And so there's this, I think, additional body of evidence that backs up the multiple theses that you were you were putting forward in terms of uh, like the, the horrific things that now our society considers to be fantasy and and and, and when the, when you consider that 88% of mainstream pornography is now violent and that women are facing this their, their their scream of rage as you point out is going towards the wrong person and many conservatives have asked why why can't anybody why can't they ever be happy right they accomplish one thing it's on to the next thing it's on to the next thing it's on to the next thing and you answer that question in your book when you point out that's because we're not really getting to the root of the problem. So how do you see that the modern feminist movement now, as it's metastasized to what it is today, and it's sort of aimless search for meaning that isn't getting anywhere close to the mark? Well, let's go back to what feminism is getting right. Feminism, meaning today's feminism, the idea that uh, you know one should be snarling and enraged in the public square, is getting something right. Things are worse for women than they used to be. And this is a very countercultural claim because as of abortion, as, as of legal abortion, as of contraception everywhere, these two things were supposed to make women happier. And they haven't. And there's a lot of evidence for that claim. There's survey data showing female happiness, um, diminishing in across Western countries over the last couple of decades. But there's also the evidence of our senses. I mean, in what kind of world in which Fifty Shades of Grey is a popular phenomenon is a woman supposed to feel uh, safe? Right. So I think there, a, a lot of women are picking up on these emanations, if you want to call them that, from the culture. I mean, being educated doesn't make you safe. Look at the women of the Me Too movement. Those women were, for the most part, left-leaning, you know, in very um, Tony fields like Hollywood and the media. They were products of elite institutions in many cases. And that didn't protect, protect them from predation on a scale that used to be known only to kings and pashas. Well, now, after the sexual revolution, uh, a lot of men can behave as if they were, you know, rapacious kings and pashas. So women are right to feel unnerved by this, I think. But again, the target of the wrath uh, is wholly mistaken because the problem for these women is not, say, the Catholic Church that for all of its problems stands against pornography and stands for the idea that men and women are equal moral agents uh, and other, you know, counter-revolutionary uh, items. The problem for feminism is not the Catholic Church, and it's not moral traditionalism. The problem is that the sexual revolution has unleashed predation and made it harder to find what most women, even now, will say they want most, which is marriage and family. That's where the rage is coming from. And then flipping the other side of the coin uh, to take a look at men, and I will admit that as somebody who works in the pro-life movement, it has been consistently easy for me 
uh, to demonize men simply because of the role they often play in coercing abortions. And as somebody who's done a lot of writing on the issue of pornography, of course, pornography has sort of, you know, sent the winds howling down the dark passageways of the mind and doors that men didn't even know existed have begun to rattle. And we see the the spawning of, of violent pornography and it's mainstreamed the idea of sexual violence in, 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 in books like 50 shades of gray, which sold a hundred million copies in ways we've never seen before. But the success of Jordan Peterson, as you point out, is not only that he spoke to the deep desires of men to have somebody tell them how to be masculine, especially those who grew up in fatherless homes and those who believed and had sort of imbibed this idea that there was something fundamentally wrong with being men. Uh, But Jordan Peterson also was one of the first people to show real compassion for a group of people that's easy not to feel compassion for which is especially a lot of the the lost white males, the infamous lost white males who are a lot less useful than their fathers, even though many of them didn't have their fathers around. They're generally, by the statistics, uh, porn-addicted, often socially inept, not very skillful in the things that men used to be skillful in. And so they're very easy to sneer at, very easy to make jokes at, and very few people have paid them the, the kindness, care, and attention that Jordan Peterson has. I think Jordan Peterson has single-handedly been robbing the alt-right of young white men for all of the years he's been speaking to them because he's offering them a much better alternative to to resentment. But how would you characterize, as you do it in the one chapter of your book, the impact the sexual revolution has had on men? Because on one hand, you say that women feel sort of pushed to become more masculine, and you talk about the entry of women into contact sports as one example. And then on the other hand, men are essentially having to walk away from things that were traditionally masculine because those things are now viewed as toxic masculinity. Could you unpack that a bit for our listeners? Sure, Jonathan. So, yes, I think to take it, uh, to offer the biggest picture approach, I think the sexual revolution has pushed both men and women away from masculinity and femininity and toward a more androgynous mean. And it's done this for different reasons. In the case of women, as we've discussed, they feel cornered, they feel threatened. Uh, many embrace a kind of feminist ideology as a, a tough, swaggering uh, expression of that vulnerability. But it's very different for men. In our world today, the mere fact that you could have a phrase like toxic masculinity tells you that something has gone seriously awry since the sexual revolution. What would toxic femininity look like? It wouldn't occur to anyone to come up with a phrase like that. But to demonize fully half the human race, that is the male half, uh, with this phrase toxic masculinity is to undermine any hope that men are going to flourish as men. And men get this message. In the book, I talk about some of the manifestations of this uh, drift toward a more androgynous place, uh, like the explosion of men's cosmetics, for example, uh, and certain items of fashion and androgynous fashion and so on. But these are just surface manifestations of what I think is a much bigger roiling underneath. And what's roiling the waters there is that in a world where a lot of kids are growing up without a father, 
There's no model to teach them, teach boys how to be masculine, obviously. And also, there's a kind of subterranean message throughout the culture that men are bad. Men are not to be trusted. Men are predators. Well, sure, some men are predators. Again, we saw this um, pretty clearly in the case of Me Too, uh, but not all men. So once more, what's happened is that the, the ecosystem, the human ecosystem, has been warped because of what's been dumped into it since the sexual revolution. And it's my hope that holding a mirror up to all of that will make at least some people rethink the happy talk about the revolution, uh, especially in the wake of Me Too, which I think was a very significant uh, social phenomenon that revealed what I'm talking about in Primal Screams, which is that you know, we have become seriously unmoored from the reality of what kind of creatures we are. I, I wanted your your specific take on on Me Too because, in some ways, the Me Too movement was this attempt to to reassert the sexual boundaries and the sexual morality that we abandoned in the sexual revolution. But one of the key differences between the Judeo-Christian tradition of sexual morality and this one is that there is no redemption in the Me Too version uh, of sexual uh, morality now. You can hardly call it that, but you, but you know what I mean. That essentially it's a, it's a re-imposition of a lot of the old rules, but without the grace uh, that sinners uh, can ask for. Because now, once you've done something terrible, uh, you are defined by it forever, regardless of whether that was acting inappropriately or all the way up the scale to, to Harvey Weinstein, who was, is obviously accused uh, of being a serial rapist. And so the the Me Too movement, as you point out, is is a great microcosm of a lot of these forces that you detail in your book, Primal Screams. But how do you, how do you see the Me Too movement? Some have said that there are positive elements to it, and obviously, when rapists are going to jail, that's quite transparently a good thing. But what's your take of an analysis of the overall movement? Well, to me, the movement is a perfect example of a breakdown in social communication, which is another theme of the book, as you know, that ironically, although many of today's men and women might be the most sexually experienced in history, they may also be the most sexually illiterate. And why do I say that? Because after the revolution, we crushed the petri dish through which people learn about the opposite sex in the first place. There are homes without fathers. There are families without siblings. There are uh, families without cousins, aunts, uncles. To point these kinds of things out is not to demonize any particular choice. You know, that's the old culture war way of doing things. I'm not demonizing any particular thing. I'm asking about the collective impact of many millions of such decisions, all of which have served to fracture us. So back to me, too. Reading through those stories of the, the women and their accusations, uh, which I spent a long time doing at one point, I was struck by something. And at first, I couldn't even figure out what it was, Jonathan. And then it hit me. Where in these stories are these women's fathers, brothers, cousins, uncles, or other men to whom they might have confided what was happening? Right. You know, men who might have tried to intervene in this. And to say that isn't to put forward some, you know, caricature of a caveman with a club, you know, dragging someone into a cave. It's to make a very commonsensical point here. 
where were the men in these women's lives? And I think the answer is, in a lot of cases, they, they didn't have such men in their lives. They haven't had the example of relations like that to learn from. And this is what I mean about the, the incoherence behind Me Too. So these women, many of them well-educated, um, you know, from the sort of leadership class, were on the receiving end, if these stories are true, uh, over and over again, of predatory behavior. Did no one ever tell them, don't go to your boss's hotel room in the middle of the night? And other sort of commonsensical things, it, it never occurred to them that things like this might happen. To say that isn't to blame victims. It's just to say, well, if you walk through a bad neighborhood at night and something bad happens to you, you're still a victim, but maybe you shouldn't have been in that bad neighborhood. My point is that a lot of young women seem to be being released into the public square with no protective coloration, uh, with no understanding of certain aspects of the opposite sex uh, at its worst. And this clearly is because people are not learning from those around them in ways that humanity always used to. Well, what's interesting about that point is that uh, the, the the people who do who did have more of a tendency to be suspicious of some of the Me Too claims would have said, well, yeah, didn't anybody tell you not to go to your boss's hotel room at midnight? With the obvious implication being that you 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 knew what you were doing was stupid, and so something like that was likely to happen. But what you're pointing out is that it very well might be the case that in today's shattered family structure and with a lack of male role models, it's very, very possible that nobody ever did tell them that. Right. And uh, again, to the general point about arithmetic, there are fewer uh, males to whom women are related uh, who can be relied on in that familial way. Yeah, yeah. So a co- a two more points before we, we get to uh, the part of the discussion where we talk about your solutions. One of the solutions, of course, being that hopefully many people will go out and buy and read your diagnosis. The first one is, again, about loneliness. And there's something very interesting uh, about about the issue of loneliness. If you go into an old age home uh, here in Canada, you'll see many, many elderly white boomers. You'll see very few people from the East Indian community, for example, who still prize community and generally take their parents into their homes. Three-generation homes are extremely common, whereas in the, you know, the white population, it is just much less the case. You talk about loneliness quite extensively in terms of the the people who died deaths of loneliness in the heat wave in France in 2003, which I remember reading about in the newspaper. Uh, and actually the same thing is mentioned by uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass in his recent book, uh, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. He talks about something similar happening in, happening in Chicago 15 years ago. So what is this loneliness epidemic and how does it relate directly to the sexual revolution thesis you're putting forward? Well, this is the interesting thing. So when the sexual revolution first started taking off, sociologists and other social scientists who wanted to see what was happening would look toward one end of life, the early end of life, because there was a lot of data that was being collected about the effects of, say, the fatherless home 
on behavioral outcomes, on educational achievement, on criminality and stuff like that. But now, 60 years into the experiment, we are seeing that the effects of the revolution are system-wide. And the explosion of loneliness, that is not an overstatement, the explosion of loneliness in every advanced country in the world is directly traceable to the fact that a lot of people stopped having children. Children would appear to be nature's solution to loneliness. But a lot of people stopped marrying, they stopped having children, and the result is that if you were to go to Google and Google loneliness studies, United States, loneliness studies, Japan, or fill in the blank with any country uh, you can think of that's a relatively well-off country, and you will see that this phenomenon is now the object of study in one nation after another. Where is it coming from? It could only be coming from a world in which Fewer people had people to have their backs and take them in in old age. So this, to me, is one of the most poignant manifestations of the revolution's fallout. Uh, and it is something that we're going to be dealing with for a long time to come because the, the demographic trends that gave rise to it don't show any sign of reversing. Yeah, there's a famous painting of, of a family uh, fleeing from a burning city, fleeing from invading forces. Uh, in the ancient Roman Empire, and the muscular father is carrying on his back his aging father. And one of the lines in your book that really jumped out at me was when you actually said that a lot of these people died of loneliness simply because they lacked the one thing virtually all humans have had throughout the history of human civilization, which was somebody to bear them to safety. And that struck me as just so profoundly sad that people with much less material goods than we have didn't have that one fundamental thing that in the case of the 2003 heat wave would literally have saved their lives. It was just a really profoundly sad way uh, that you put that. And that takes me to, I, I guess, the, the final question, because this has been a very illuminating conversation. I can't emphasize how much I recommend this book to everybody listening. And I, I'm hoping that this diagnosis will will actually help people to start thinking about why we got to where we are. It is, it's not a partisan book. It's not a rhetorical book. It just lays out the evidence very clearly and very charitably. And so wh- how do you see the way forward? It, it's, I think, safe to say that you've been studying this for a very long time. You were one of the foremost experts on the impact of the sexual revolution. You've written four or five books about it now. So how would you see the way forward when you look at where we are, how we got here, these new movements that, as I've heard you say and write before, um, like these gender movements that are half a decade old now. Uh, I at one point did a speech on transgenderism. There was three or four new genders from the previous time I'd given that, that, same, that same lecture. Where would you say uh, we're going and how is there a way out of this? A lot of listeners are going to be quite dubious. Uh, that there is a way out of this, but do you see a way out of this in all of your research on this? Well, it's interesting. I'd like to make a couple of points about that. Uh, the first is that, as with anything else, if we don't get the diagnosis right, we can't solve the problem. So if we think the problem out there is the patriarchy and instead the problem is what I'm describing, we're not going to get anywhere by saying the problem is the patriarchy. So it really matters to 
lay the whole thing out and understand what's what's going on beneath the surface of identity politics and the other phenomena that I'm talking about in the book. So is there hope? Of course there's hope. There's always hope. Um, <laughs> you'll notice that in the book there are three uh, commentators included, Rod Dreher, Mark Lilla, and Peter Thiel, for different reasons, all of whom could be expected to disagree with me. Uh, but we did that for a reason. We wanted the book to be a model of, you know, civil conversation and engagement, including by people who don't agree. Well, Mark Lilla, a professor at Columbia, uh, is a liberal, and the essence of his disagreement with the book is to say, well, the problem with Eberstadt's theory is that the sexual revolution is here to stay, everybody's got to get over it, and go from there. So... Here's my problem with that way of looking at it. That is a historicist argument, right, Jonathan? It's straight out of Hegel, Mm -hmm. and it's the idea that something called capital H history uh, sorts these things out and sets them into stone, and that capital H history is behind where we are now. And I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a lot of reasons. Number one, There's no reason to think that the sexual revolution alone among all phenomena of humanity is immune to criticism or reversal. There have been examples previously in history where behaviors that were ubiquitous and unremarkable ended up being the objects of a big social transformation. Um, To give one example, the the gin epidemic in pre-Victorian London where people were just sleeping in the streets, uh, not taking care of their children. And it took a huge reform movement to turn that around. But the gin alleys of London are no more. Similarly, uh, let's talk about tobacco smoking, because that is a really fascinating example of how a substance that's in wide circulation that everybody takes for granted can become stigmatized such that 50 years after the Surgeon General's report, there was a very different consensus about smoking. So that is an example of how how much of a turnaround there can be. Another would be the pro-life movement, uh, the fact that younger people are more likely than their baby boomer parents to be pro-life. That in itself is evidence of a kind of rollback of sexual revolution ideology. So to say that there's no room for hope would be a very, would be the opposite message to get from this book. I, I think there are all kinds of reasons for hope, including that we are rational animals. You know, we're not only animals, we're rational animals. And I think putting the evidence out there uh, in a reasonable way um, stands, uh, offers the opportunity of conversion. The final question would be, where can people order this book? Oh, thank you. It's available at Amazon and at my website, maryeberstadt.com, and also at Templeton Press, the publishers. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this with us. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with author, commentator, and intellectual Mary Aberstadt on her new book, Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you want to check out previous shows, please head over to LifeSiteNews.com. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Pippa. We're on all of your podcast platforms. We, again, are grateful to have you join us this week, and we really hope that you'll join us again for another great interview next week.